I usually uh, have us uh, read a longer passage, but we're actually only going to read First um, Peter two uh, verses one to three. First Peter chapter one verse two. Verses 1 to 3. This is God's word. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I I usually uh, have something for young people in my when I was growing up in my kitchen we had um, next to the refrigerator we had two cookie jars one was uh, blue and it had flowers on it and uh, and the other we called the Dutch lady she looked like a, a lady dressed up in a costume and you could pick up her head <laughs> to get to the cookies. Well, my mom made these cookies. They were um, sort of brown sugar rounds. She sprinkled sugar on top of them. And when they came out of the oven, they were really soft. And then they'd get hard over time. Well, what my mom would do is she'd pour me a glass of milk and I could dip the cookie in the milk. And I liked it because part of the cookie fell off and sunk to the bottom of the milk. So I got to eat that too. Um, uh, and uh, it was so good being there with my mom having those cookies. Well, my mom said that milk would make my bones strong. Now, we drink almond milk, but it's still going to make our bones strong, we hope. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, I drank that milk, and I loved the cold, cold milk with the, with the cookie. Well, uh, God says that we're to want the milk that he gives, which is the Bible. We're to be thirsty for God's word. How about that? We're to say, you know, I haven't had my daily glass of Bible today. So help me. So uh, I hope you'll listen because it tells us about Jesus. Of course, it's always telling us about Jesus. Uh, so I hope you'll listen and you'll be excited to 
read the Bible or hear the Bible, okay? Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you'll be with us now. Uh, Lord, we've already done more in this service and confession of faith and confession of sin and thinking of singing hymns and reading scripture than many people find in church. So help us not to get tired, <laughs> me included, to get tired um, trying to look at your word. You can do this by your mighty Holy Spirit. We are thankful that your Holy Spirit is your gift, Lord Jesus, your gift to your people. Please be with us now. Guide us. Guide me. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the most chilling warnings God ever gives is in Amos chapter 8. He says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. There's scarcely a time in recent years when Bibles and books about the Bible and books about Bible doctrine and the Christian life and so forth have ever been as common as they have been today, even though in our our city all the Christian bookstores have closed up. Uh, they've been overtaken by Costco and Amazon and online places. Rarely has there been as much ignorance, though, of what God teaches in the Bible. A Pew Charitable Trust did a survey, and the opening line was, Americans are by all measures a deeply religious people, but they are also deeply ignorant of religion. We've got cable channels devoted to religious subjects. We've got access through the internet to years, archives of religious teaching. Yet we look around and we see that our country has become so secular that it is just breathtaking. We may face that famine that Amos talks about if God's not merciful. But what can we, this little church here, what can we do? Well, Peter directs us to cultivate a taste for the word of God. And more than a taste, a longing for it, a hunger for it, a thirst for it. Here in 
1 Peter 2, we have to recognize that Peter has um, a connection both uh, before and after his verses. Before his verses, he had been talking about the love of the believers for one another and preparing your mind for action, as he says in verse 13, and being purified uh, in your obedience to the truth. And he's talking about the preaching of the word of God and what the preaching of the word of God had done for them. And now he begins a section that's going to go from verse 1 down to verse 12. And he's going to be talking about spiritual nourishment coming from the word of God. So three things. Put away, desire, and grow up. Put away, desire, and grow up. Back in chapter 1, talking about putting away, back in chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. There he shows that the believer has been born again through the living and abiding word of God. Now, they had inherited, verse 18 talks about it, they inherited the futile ways from their fathers. We have all around us futility being taught to us. Now, some of the things we need to learn are good. When we're growing up, we're told, don't touch the stove, it's hot. Hold your cup with two hands, don't chew with your mouth open, that kind of stuff. It shapes our thinking. Parents shape a world view for their children, but we see the world as God's creation, as the theater for his glory. We have to see that we don't have any ultimate wisdom in ourselves. I was praying this morning for my my son and daughter-in-law. They have eight kids. And I think, how in the world do you do it? It was difficult enough with four kids. How in the world do you do it with eight kids? You have to be taught by the word of God. You have to know that we are sinners. And so we need a savior. And we're inadequate in ourselves. And we're going to come again and again to God. Otherwise, the futile ways of our fathers will be pointing us in the direction of moralism. Moralism can never kill sin. Moralism, seeking to be a good person apart from God, only masks a sinful root, and it can never root out Sin. When we're moralists, we're always having a campaign to stop bad habits and to be nicer 
more thoughtful not to do those things again. All the while, sin in us is raging like a fire. Because we're not believing that God alone can put that to death. Peter's readers, however, had heard the gospel. And because they heard the gospel, the good news that was preached to them, it was a gospel that exalted Jesus Christ and his sufficiency, his completeness to save. He's the only possible deliverer from sin's guilt, penalty, and power. And nothing that we do, no moral campaign we have, is going to do it. Now, Peter's writing that the good news was preached to them. And what's the first result of the good news? Peter says in verse 1, it's a putting away. It's a putting away, and then he lists a whole series of things. Now, Peter's list is is uh, similar to the things uh, that Paul will write about when he talks about the old man and putting off the old man. We have the two great commandments from Jesus, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as herself. And now we have to deal with the fact that we're not loving our neighbor. Look at the things that he, he says. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Can this be in the church? Could this kind of thing be happening in the church? Malice abounds on the internet. There's cyberbullying. Can that happen to the church? Well, I read about one couple that moved across country. They had a quarrel with their pastor in the church. And when he moved across country, they moved across country so they could give him trouble there. That's malice. Guile means all types of deceit, the craftiness of a hunter who baits his uh, snare and conceals it until the animal's trapped. Ministers of all kinds use guile, sad to say, to lead their congregations into accepting falsehoods. One of the great Preachers in England is called Steve Chalky. This is how he's described. You have to admire Steve Chalky. He is pleasant, comes across as intelligent, winsome, articulate. He makes a great spokesman for Christianity. His actions match his words. The work of uh, um, Oasis Trust is rightly admired throughout the United Kingdom and beyond. In the eyes of the media, he's a leading figure in the United Kingdom of Christian scene, especially the evangelical scene. But you know what? 
he denies the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He says that that idea that Jesus bore our sins is an idea of cosmic child abuse. He almost heart, had to find it hard to say. Because he's pleasant, winsome, and articulate, his guile is the more dangerous. Perhaps more dangerous, too, is hypocrisy, a false face that rejects it, that, that masks the rejection of biblical truth. The Pharisees would come to Jesus and they would ask Jesus questions. But Jesus called them because that's what they were. They were putting on a false face to, to capture him in his words. We give somebody a good advice, and it is good advice. We give somebody good advice, and we think, look, I've done it. I've done my good deed for the day. God will bless me today because of what I've done. But the attitude that we're projecting is that we're better than we really are, that we know more than we really know, that we've lived out these things in ways we haven't lived out. Hypocritically, we join and praise other people while we're secretly envying them because he mentions envy as well. We backbite against them. We speak evil against them. This happens in the church. Whatever word you use, it's common in Christian churches and we hardly pay attention to it. It's the subtle comment about somebody else that sounds witty or funny but it comes from a heart that doesn't love our neighbor as ourselves. And finally, he mentions slander. And it comes so subtly in those prayer requests we make about uh, sister so-and-so who's been having a problem again with drinking or whatever. These things are found among Christians. Paul has to answer these questions and address them in, in churches because even in churches this kind of stuff happens. The old man is being put away. We have to put away those things which are not in accord with the word of God or the image of Jesus Christ so that we come to desire instead what God says in his word. Look at verse 2. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. Newborn infants. Now, of course, in scripture we know that newborn infants in some places is sort of a reminder that they need to buck up, pay attention. Paul does that in various places in uh, 
talking to those who are immature in 1 Corinthians and in Ephesians. The idea of being immature means that you're ready to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine, uh, that you have no stability. But that's not what Peter's talking about. The breffe that he's talking about, the newborn, that we all know, the all the newborn needs changes of diapers, it needs things to play with, somebody to hold it, rub its back, and so forth. But a child may be there fed and nothing else is going to do except, excuse me, a child may be changed and ready and nothing else is going to do except to be fed. Nothing else will satisfy that. And so the crying will continue and continue and continue. Peter tells us to be like newborn babes so we see ourselves in need of the food that only God can supply. That's his word. Just as a mother is the only one who can supply the nourishment that the child needs, so uh, God supplies through his word what we need. This longing, this desire is actually a command. Look at it, verse 12. Verse 2, like newborn infants long, and that's a command, long for the pure spiritual milk. This imperative is great longing for. It's great longing for the milk of God's word. This longing for is what Paul wrote about in Romans. He longed to be there with them. It's the longing that the believer feels to, to, to die and to be with Christ. It's the longing that Paul felt when he was old and in prison in Rome and about to be executed. And he was longing for Timothy to come to him. This desire is so strong it pulls at the heart Paul wasn't semi-interested in having Timothy come to him in Rome. Paul was aching with loneliness. He wanted it. Peter applies the word to our longing for the nourishment of the word of God. The baby cries out uh, for food. And the Christian is supposed to cry out for the milk of the word. Just as a baby will not be satisfied with anything except the milk, so we shouldn't be satisfied with anything except the Word of God. Think about it. You read books about the Bible without reading the Bible. You read books about Christian doctrine even reform doctrine to grow in your understanding but you don't read the Bible we don't come to 
grow in our depth of appreciation for the Reformed faith by simply reading doctrinal books, but by reading the Word of God and seeing it on every page. Peter wants us to cry out to hunger for the knowledge that isn't secondhand that comes from reading other books, but the Bible itself. Now, this is pretty amazing when you think about the context of this verse. These folks didn't have wide margin Bibles or multiple Bibles around their houses. They probably didn't have any scripture in their house. It was all kept at the church. It was kept in the church in a box called a scriptorum. And they would have maybe some books from the Old Testament, scrolls, and they had to take turns using it. Maybe they didn't have any of the Gospels yet or any of the letters of Paul. There wouldn't have been multiple copies. And so what you got a picture is that they're hungry and crying like a baby for Leviticus. Leviticus or Second Chronicles or Haggai. Because the foundational truth that we hold on to is that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. This means those genealogies are profitable. It means that the construction of the tabernacle is profitable. That the regulations about peace offerings are profitable. They're all as profitable well, maybe not as, but they're profitable just like Psalm 51 or Genesis 1 or Isaiah 53. We may not find the same nourishment in some parts of the Bible that we do in others, but we are committed to the idea that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, the further context is that the primary way that these believers would have fed upon the Word of God was through the preaching of the Word of God, Sunday by Sunday. They didn't come to worship to be entertained. They weren't looking to see what new songs were going to be introduced. They didn't want to hear about the pastor's travels around the world or the news of the world. They were eager to hear the word of God. We're tiny. We don't have much outward, outwardly to commend us to the watching world. But we have the most important thing and that's the word of God. And because we have the word of God because it's central to the life of this congregation. You can come here and you can be fed. You're, we're living in a day when people are caught up in so many other things that they think 
that the sermon is secondary. But it's the word of God being declared to you authoritatively. Thus says the Lord. So you better be praying for Matt Walker and all the responsibility he's going to have. It's the word of God which is meant to satisfy our hunger pangs, the pure, unadulterated word of God. One minister I knew, I asked him how he prepared the sermons. He said he reads a newspaper, clips things out, reads church bulletins, clips them out, and he pastes them together Sunday morning about 5 o'clock. Does that have anything to do with the Bible? No, not at all. We don't want to dilute the Word of God. We want it straight out. And that means we can grow up. So we put off. We're putting away. We're longing for. And now we're growing up. Now, the way that verses uh, 2 and 3 are divided up, um, we're going to have to look at this and chop it up a little bit. Because beginning at the end of verse 2, that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That begins what's called in Greek a hina clause. H-I-N-A. Hina. Hina clause. And that's talking about a purpose clause that you may grow up into salvation if you've tasted that the Lord's good. Now these believers are saved. Uh, how do you grow up into salvation? We believe justification is once for all. Our great shorter catechism, catechism question 33 says, the act uh, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by grace alone. That is an outstanding way of talking about justification. So this is this is reformed doctrine. Justification is an act of God reconciling the sinner to himself, not based on anything in the sinner, but only on what Christ has done for the sinner, which is appropriated only by repenting of sin and believing what God declares in the gospel, that the one who believes in the Son will not perish under holy wrath, but have everlasting life. The union of the sinner with Christ is by faith and by faith alone. There's no other way. 
But the problem we have is that we don't live in that truth. We are inveterate moralists. We always start by faith and end up by works. Oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. Jesus alone can save me from judgment. But then we're always taking our eyes off Christ and looking at our own lives. How well am I doing today? Even Bible-believing Christians will say, I'm sure your mother's in heaven. She was such a good lady. Do you get to heaven by being good? Even reformed believers fear to come to God because they had a lousy quiet time or they didn't have any quiet time at all. They hadn't read the Bible in two days, three days, three weeks, a month, a year. And so we fear to come. We fear to come because we've just thought, not spoken, just thought something cutting, something cruel, malicious, envious, deceitful about another person, something that nobody's ever going to know. But I can't come to God. I'm just not ready. We don't fight temptation. We don't do it strongly enough. We don't have our devotions like we should. We immediately forget what we read in our devotions. Why does God bother with me? I'm a lazy, undisciplined, sinning Christian. Why would he hear my prayers? I'm not saying that we shouldn't be disciplined in our devotional life and that we shouldn't fight sin. But we grow up into salvation. Now listen to this. We grow up into salvation when we realize we can never come to God any other way than pleading the merits of Jesus Christ. On our best days, on our best days, when we overcome temptations, when our Bible reading is blessed when we're wise and loving in our uh, words we grow up into salvation when we realize we need Jesus as much as we did the day before salvation can never be separated from the Savior salvation isn't some state that Jesus takes us to and then leaves us on our own. Salvation is realizing more and more that Christ is more precious to me than life itself. We grow up into salvation when we see the greatness of Christ and his work. And then 
we live on that basis instead of again and again basing our hope on how good we're doing. We have to put off the old things, the things described in verse 1. Because we're united by faith to the Son of God. And in Jesus, none of those things are. There's no malice in Christ, no deceit in Christ, no hypocrisy in Christ, no envy in Christ, no slander in Christ. None of these things are true of Christ. And we want to put on Christ. How do we do that? By saying, I need thee every hour. Because that's what it means to say if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter's quoting Psalm 34. In that psalm, David had been delivered by the Lord from a fix he got himself messed up in with the Philistines. He's rejoicing in God's saving work and in the middle, thinking of God's salvation. He's like a newborn baby, hungry for God himself. We don't worship the Bible. We don't worship the words on this book. We hunger and thirst for the God revealed in the Bible. And David tasted that the Lord is good. The word that's given here is connected to Jesus' words. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In Matthew 11. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. God's the father of believers. He's not a cruel, tyrannical father. The fearsome God of Islam. He is the God and father of Jesus. He gave his son. And when we find our hope in him, we know what it means to say we've tasted that the Lord is good. Growing up, I loved this old hymn, even though I wasn't a Christian. I love to tell the story. Tis pleasant to repeat what seems each time I tell it more wonderfully sweet. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. But perhaps even more precious to me is the great older hymn. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts. Thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. 
Thy truth unchanged hath ever stood. Thou savest those that all. Praise God. Thou savest those that only call. To them that seek thee, thou art good. To them that find thee, all in all. We taste, O Lord, the living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. When we've tasted that the Lord is good, we'll want to learn more and more about him. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. You are so good, so kind to give yourself for sinners and to make us into God's children. We are so, so weak, so failing, and yet you, Lord Jesus, are pleased to bring us into your fold. O God in heaven, complete your work in us. Make us lights, lamps in this place by our love for one another, by our love for your word, by our understanding that you are the one who satisfies us. Help us, Lord God, and bless this church. In Jesus' name, amen.